This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is 1 Samuel 3, verses 1 through 21. If you'd like to follow along as I read, it's printed in your bulletin or found on page 227 in the Bibles in your rows. 1 Samuel 3. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel, at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, and he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. I think about this story a lot when my kids wake us up in the middle of the night. I keep thinking, can we just ignore it? And then I think about the story. Well, maybe it's going to be the voice of the Lord. It never is. It's always just that they have to go to the bathroom or need a glass of water or whatever. But we are looking at uh, 1 Samuel uh, this summer, the second half of the summer. We're looking at the first half of 1 Samuel. And the book of Samuel uh, is really the story of transition. It's the transition of Israel from a tribal society to a monarchy. Chronologically, the action is clustered around the year 1000 BC, so about midway between the call of Abraham and the birth of Jesus Christ. So smack dab in the between of all that is, is the action that we have here uh, in these pages. And though the story is about the way the nation of Israel takes shape, it doesn't start with politics. It doesn't start with national security. It doesn't start with policy or legislation. But rather, it starts with an ordinary woman 
praying in the midst of her pain. Ryan talked about the story of Hannah a couple weeks ago. And it starts also with the failings of the religious life of the priesthood in Israel. Brian talked about that last week. But the third prong of the beginnings of this story is God's persistent pursuit of his people. And that takes shape for us in 1 Samuel chapter 3 in the call of a boy named Samuel. And so as we begin this morning, uh, let's start with a little bit of context. We need to know that there was a famine in the land at this time. Now, you might say, wait a minute, where's that in the text? Where's there a famine in the land? Well, verse 1, 1 Samuel 3, Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was a scarcity of God's word among the people in Israel. Later on in Israel's history, the prophet Amos describes another period much like this, and here's what the prophet Amos said. He said, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Jesus says in the New Testament, quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so if the Word of God is spiritual food, then the absence of it results in a spiritual famine. Now, why was there a famine of God's Word during this period in Israel's history? Well, 1 Samuel comes chronologically directly after the book of Judges, and the last verse in Judges is both revealing and devastating in its description of the state of things in Israel. Judges 21-25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel, Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. People were supposed to be ruled by God as their king, with his word serving as the God, shaping their life together as a people. But instead, it says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And it just wasn't the, the people in general, but the priesthood in particular that was corrupt at this time. Brian talked about it again last week. The, the sons of Eli... Phineas and, I was going to say Phineas and Ferb, but that's a cartoon. They would not make good priests either, but funnier probably than the ones we have here in this story. Uh, Phineas and Hophni, or it's the sons of Eli, with their greed and their manipulation and their sexual immorality, I highly recommend going back and listening to Brian's sermon from last week if you haven't heard it yet. So things are not good, though, and we know what happens uh, when a relationship is in bad strait. Very often it manifests itself in the parties not speaking to one another, and that's what we have here. God's discipline results in the Word of God being rare in those days. God and Israel are not on speaking terms. Now, I do want to say, though, this does not mean that there were no faithful people in Israel. We shouldn't exaggerate here. Chapter 1 shows us Elkanah and Hannah, who are faithful worshipers of God. Chapter 2 shows us a, just quote-unquote, it says, a man of God, a prophet of sorts, who comes to speak God's word to Eli. So that there were faithful people in Israel. But overall, the picture is bleak. And the famine of God's word is both evidence and cause of this dark period. And I suppose the question we might ask this morning is, is there something like this going on today? Is there a famine of God's Word? Now, on the one hand, you might pretty quickly and definitively say, no way. 
not a famine of God's word. We've seen great growth of the church around the world. God's word is going out. It's bearing fruit. Our church here at New City is connected to exciting movements in India and China. And we just regularly hear reports of the explosive growth of the church in Africa. And even here in our little part of the city in the neighborhood of Norwood, just in the last 10 years, there have been at least three new gospel-centered churches planted in our neighborhood, teaching the Bible, sharing the faith, replacing churches that had withered and died for one reason or another. So is there a famine of the Word of God? Well, maybe not, but on the other hand, we do see, at least in the church in the West, in many places, the church shrinking, often shrinking in numbers, but also sometimes shrinking in its convictions or in its commitment to the Bible's teaching. In the last year, one of the things that with both encouraging and depressing at the same time was the number of times we heard from people from out of town who were watching via the live stream and saying things like, you know, I'd rather be somewhere in person, but I couldn't find a good Bible teaching church in my town. Is there a famine of God's word in our context? Well, I suppose it depends on perspective and some ebb and flow, but I do know this, as Christians, thinking about this, a discerning Christian ought always to be asking of any place where we go, is God's word there? Is it proclaimed? Is it honored? Or is it mere window dressing? Or even worse, is it opposed? Now, for our part here at New City, it's our conviction that the Word of God has to be the center of our life together. When we gather, we do so around God's Word. Our community is meant to be shaped by God's Word. We're to speak God's Word to each other as we encourage and build each other up, but also as we admonish and as we challenge each other. And our words of the neighborhood has to be God's Word, not anything clever or new that we've dreamed up. Dale Ralph Davis puts it this way. He says, we simply know that it is a sign of God's grace when God's word has free course among God's people. If contemporary believers have a church where social activities, committee meetings, and nifty programs have not eclipsed the place of the word of God, if the teaching of the word of God stands at the heart of the church's life, if there is a pulpit ministry where the scriptures are clearly, accurately, and helpfully preached, then they are rich in the grace of God. Now we have to move on here because we're only at verse one, but uh, before we do, we should note that the Bible tells us uh, a famine of God's word can come not only on the side on the proclaiming, but also on the side of the receiving. Uh, when I was a missionary in Europe 20 years ago or, or so now, we had our mid-year conference in southern Spain, and all the campus ministers from all over Europe would uh, come there for a week of worship and fellowship and teaching. And on the last day, I was not looking forward to going back to the gray skies of northern Europe in the winter, and so I was trying to soak up as much of southern Spain as I could. I took a swim in the Mediterranean, and I stayed like until the very last moment we had to jump in the taxi to get to the airport to catch our plane. And somehow when I was in there, I got water trapped in my eardrum, and then just sort of going straight to the plane, the altitude, the pressure that happens from that, and for the next month, I couldn't hear anything out of that ear, just intense pressure, and everything sounded muted far away. Everything was quiet. Well, in the New Testament, Jesus regularly says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, the Word of God can be there, and people can still experience it as a famine if you don't have ears to hear. 
Or to put it another way, starvation can come not only from a lack of food, but also from a lack of appetite. And so you have to ask, are you desperate to feast on God's word? Not just on Sunday mornings, but in your households, in your private time with the Lord. Where there was a famine of God's word, but then the Lord calls to Samuel. That's the second sort of big heading here. The call of Samuel. Verses 2 and 3 set the scene. It's nighttime. Eli and Samuel are both asleep. They're in bed. And then verse 4, the Lord speaks. The Lord called Samuel, it says. And the Hebrew term uh, there for call, kara, uh, if you're transliterating, it's Q-A-R-A. It occurs 11 times in this passage in Hebrew. No doubt this is the theme. The Lord calls. The Lord speaks. And Eugene Peterson puts it this way. He says, that God speaks is the basic reality of biblical faith. The fundamental conviction of our faith is not so much that God is as that God speaks. The biblical revelation begins with God creating by word, speaking the cosmos into being. It concludes with Jesus, the word of God, speaking an invitation, come. All the pages in between are packed with sentences that God speaks in creation and invitation and judgment and salvation and healing and guidance and oracle and admonition and rebuke and comfort. The conspicuous feature in all this speaking is that God speaks in personal address. God calls to Samuel. But interestingly, and I find this at least a little bit encouraging, maybe you will as well, the first several times that God speaks to Samuel, Samuel doesn't know who it is. He doesn't recognize God's voice right off the bat. And verse 7 explains this. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. This is, in other words, untraveled ground for Samuel. But note God's patience and kindness. Samuel doesn't recognize God's call, but God is patient with him. He gives Samuel time to catch on. And if you read the Gospels, you know Jesus was patient like this with his disciples. How many times throughout the Gospel stories do we see the thickness, the slowness of the disciples to catch on, and yet Jesus is patient with them. This gives us a window to the character of God. God speaks, and then Samuel listens. Even before he recognizes God's voice, the story presents Samuel as attentive, obedient, willing. Three times in the middle of the night, he hops up in response to what he thought were Eli's calls. I don't know about you, but the temptation for me is always to pretend like I'm sleeping if I'm being interrupted. I'm really good at the, the mute on my uh, text threads. If there's more than like three or four messages on any thread, you're muted for me probably uh, at times. But Samuel's not like this. His posture... Is, is to listen. It shows us something about his readiness to receive God's word. But he needs some help, doesn't he, in discerning the voice of God. In verse 8, Eli is the one actually who suspects that God is behind this. Verse 9, Eli then instructs Samuel as to what to do if he hears this call again. Now, God could have circumvented Eli entirely, but isn't this often how it works? We often need the help of someone older to help us learn to listen to the Lord, to respond to God's voice. Sometimes this takes the form of parents. Maybe it's a Sunday school teacher, a youth leader, a mentor, a campus minister, someone to help us listen and to respond. And so maybe God this morning even is calling you to look for someone like that in your life, someone a little further down the path. Or maybe he's calling you to be that kind of someone 
for somebody else. Maybe you need to lead a Bible study or a New City Kids class. Maybe you need to volunteer with the youth ministry sometime this year. Well, finally, by verse 10, Samuel does know this is the voice of the Lord, and it says in verse 10, the Lord came and stood calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel, and Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. God speaks, Samuel listens, and after darkness, the light of God's word comes back to Israel. But what about old Eli? The next few verses present a complicated picture of where things stand with Eli. Samuel learned straight away that hearing God's word is not always an easy thing. Sometimes having God's word actually makes life much more complicated, more difficult, because the message that Samuel gets is not one that he relishes passing on. In verse 11, God says, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Now, that's an expression that comes up at other times in the Old Testament. Always, it's a time when there's an announcement of severe judgment. The tingling of the ears is not a good thing. This is a stinging kind of message. And we know Samuel's not looking forward to delivering this message because in verse 15, he stays in bed as long as he can. He doesn't want to get up. And isn't that what you do, probably, when you're dreading something? I remember in seventh grade, I you know, mysteriously got sick every time I had a math test. It just, you know, it was weird how that happened. Also, when NCAA basketball tournaments started, I was always sick on those days as well. My parents never quite figured it out. But why is Samuel dreading it? Why is he trying to stay in bed? And then why is he dashing off to work as quickly as possible? Well, the message from God is a judgment against Eli and his house. And Samuel has a close relationship with Eli. This is his mentor, maybe even a father figure. And he's still a boy, you got to remember. So this is a pretty big power imbalance between the two of them here. The call of Samuel highlights the pressure and the burden of having God's word. Andrew Bonar tells a story of a Greek artist who painted a remarkable picture of a boy carrying on his head a basket of grapes. And the grapes were painted so realistically that when the picture was displayed in ancient Athens, the birds descended from everywhere and began to peck at the grapes in the picture, thinking that they were real. And people were heaping praises upon the artist because of this. But he wasn't satisfied, the perfectionist that he was. He said, sure, the grapes look real, but the boy obviously doesn't. Otherwise, the birds would be frightened away. In other words, he's saying, if the, paint, the painting should have been both attractive and repelling to the birds. Attractive in the grapes, right? Repelling in the boy. And there's always that tension with the word of God. There's good news and there's bad news. And any authentic messenger knows that tension. And if you're listening to a teacher and all they say is good news, you have to wonder if they're being faithful. On the other hand, if all they have is critique and judgment, you have to wonder if they care. But the faithful handling of God's word afflicts the comfortable and comforts the afflicted, often at the same time. Samuel gets a taste of that right off the bat. But what about Eli? I said he's a complicated case. Well, on the one hand, it's clear that, that God's had enough with Eli and with his whole house. Verses 12, and 14, 12 to 14 excuse me, are a judgment on Eli's house, starting with verse 12. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from the beginning to the end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever. For the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, 
and he did not restrain them. You know, we all have areas in our lives where we have authority or where we bear responsibility. Eli had a responsibility for what happened within his family. He also had a responsibility as the leader of the priesthood. And so the sins of his sons, again, which Brian talked about last week, greed and sexual immorality and spiritual abuse, even though Eli wasn't the one directly doing those things, they happened under his watch. And thus he bears responsibility. It says in our text, and the iniquity that he knew, he did not restrain them. Now in chapter 2, to be fair, Eli does rebuke his sons at one point, but he does so in generalities rather than in specifics. It's probably that it was too little too late. Parents, you should be aware, you know this, you have more corrective ability when your kids are smaller than when they're older. And so perhaps for Eli, these things had been patterns that had been previously ignored and before they got out of hand as they were older. But even more, in his role as the chief of the priests, he rebukes them, but he never fires them which he should have done, therefore enabling their corruption. Now listen, we all have areas of responsibility. We have areas of authority. Parents in your home, perhaps at work you have areas of responsibility or authority. Leaders in the church certainly have this. So the challenge to us all in any of those areas you find yourself is how are you stewarding that responsibility, that relationship, that leadership, Eli's story is a cautionary tale reminding us that we will be called to account. But I will say also, beware a formulaic approach to this. Samuel, all throughout uh, this story, is contrasted with Eli. Eli's usually presented in not so flattering of a light, but Samuel, on the other hand, is presented by contrast glowingly throughout uh, the book of Samuel, first, first Samuel, and he kind of fades away by second Samuel. But Samuel was celebrated uh, almost universally in this text as a faithful leader, a godly man, someone who listens to the Lord, someone who has a deep relationship with the Lord. But if you flip over just a couple of chapters, to 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 3, it says that Samuel's sons, quote, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. And so this is just, you know, a little caution for those of us who are tempted to get real judgy or real formulaic and think that we have total control over the things that we have responsibility over. Here you have the case of Eli, whose sons go off the rails and are corrupt, and, and Eli bears some responsibility for them. But here's Samuel, who is universally praised in these chapters uh, at the beginning of the book of Samuel, and his sons go off the rails. It might mean that Samuel did everything right and his kids still turned out badly. It happens. Or it might mean he made some of the same mistakes as Eli, even if he was a great and spiritually mature leader. All I'm pointing out here is that it's only a superficial reading of the Bible to neatly divide everyone up into good guys and bad guys. Reality is much more complicated than that, and the Bible reflects that messiness. But let's also give Eli his due here before we move on. Because Eli, he's not all bad in this text. He, he's more than willing to serve as a mentor to the gifted young Samuel, as one commentator says, generosity towards those who are called to replace us is a real mark of grace, particularly if the replacement comes as a result of our own failures. And in verse 17, he knows Samuel's nervous about this message from the Lord, but he doesn't let him hedge. Uh, Eli says, give it to me straight, Samuel. Don't water it down. 
I want to know what the Lord has to say. And when Samuel tells him this hard word, Eli receives it with humility. He says, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. But let's wrap up here by talking about just these last few verses, verses 19 to 21, which talk about the growth of Samuel and really set up the next part of the story. Verse 19 begins, and Samuel grew, not just in age, but in his relationship with the Lord. It says, and the Lord was with him. From this time on, Samuel's relationship with God was close and constant. And even more, it says, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh. It wasn't just that the Lord revealed a set of ideas to Samuel. It wasn't that he gave him a particular message only, but the Lord revealed himself. And our highest hopes for all of us here at New City is that the Lord would reveal himself. We don't come to church so much to learn a set of ideas. We come to church to encounter the Lord. Samuel grows in his relationship with God. He also grows in his vocation as a prophet. It says in verse 20, all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. Now previously he had served as a priest in the temple, or a priest in training anyway, but now he has another calling. He's called to be a prophet. And what do prophets do? Well, prophets speak God's words to the people, and God, God had tested Samuel in this right away. Remember, he doesn't have good news for Eli, but he faithfully communicates the word that he was given. And you won't faithfully pass on, or if you won't faithfully pass on what God tells you, well, he probably won't tell you much more. But Samuel does, and then God continues to use him and establish his ministry in Israel. Samuel grows in his relationship with the Lord. He grows in his vocation as a prophet. And the last kind of growth we see here at the end is the growth of the word of the Lord in Israel. Chapter 4, the very next chapter, begins, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Remember how we started chapter 3. It was with a famine, the scarcity of God's word. But here at the end of the chapter, it says from Dan to Beersheba. Dan was the northern border of Israel. Beersheba was on the southern border of Israel. So all Israel now is recognizing that God is speaking to them through the prophet Samuel. At the beginning of the chapter, there's a famine. But now here at the end, there's a feast, feast of God's word. And so what do we do with this? Well, just three very quick things as we close. The first is, and probably saw us sort of leading up to this, hedging up to this, uh, we need to build our lives on the Word of God. We need to build our lives on the Word of God. Verse 19 says, The Lord was with Samuel, and God let none of his words fall to the ground. Now, what does that mean? Let none of his words fall to the ground. I actually had to do a little bit of study on this this week. Literally, in Hebrew, it means something like God won't let his words rot or decay or fall to pieces. What it's really saying is the words of God never ever pass away. The words of God take up space. The words of God don't evaporate. The words of God don't wither or fall apart. Martin Luther put it this way. He says the word of a human being is like a little sound that goes out into the air and is gone, but the word of God is heavier than heaven and earth. It outweighs the heavens and the earth. It will outlast them. You see what Luther's saying? He's saying human words don't take up space. They're not dense. They're not ultimate reality. Human words pass away. 
the Word of God will remain, will endure, will take effect, will bear fruit. And something that solid, something that secure is the only thing really worth building your life upon. So the question is, are you doing that? Do you have ears to hear? To use Jesus' expression, coming to church, sitting under the teaching of God's Word, the preaching of God's Word, that's part of it. But are you engaging with the Bible regularly at home, personally, with your housemates, with your family? Are you engaged in a group where you can talk about those things and process them together, a community group, or starting up again this fall, or men's groups and women's groups? We need to build our lives on the Word of God. But then secondly, we also need to recognize God's Word is what we have to offer to our neighbors and to our friends. It's our hope. For the community, it's, it's part of, uh, of the central uh, thing that we ought to be doing is delivering God's word to our neighbors and coworkers and classmates. We want to love and serve our neighbors, but one of the ways that we do that, maybe the primary way, is declaring and demonstrating God's word. And this is a hopeful mission for us. It's hopeful because God's word is really light in the midst of darkness, but it's also hopeful because God himself is committed to this mission. Remember, he says, as, as Samuel does this, does his work as a prophet, it says God will make sure none of his words fall to the ground in vain. In other words, God is committed to the mission of his word going out and bearing fruit. And then finally, with Samuel, Israel now had a prophet in residence, someone to regularly bring them God's word. The truth is we have something better than that. Or I should say we have someone better than that. Hebrews chapter 1 puts it this way. Long ago, and many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, like Samuel. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Listen, Samuel was great. A child of miraculous birth, the bearer of revelation, his words are to be heeded. None of them should fall to the ground, God says. But Jesus Christ is better. He too was a child of miraculous birth. In fact, his mother Mary based her song on Samuel's mom's song. Jesus just not the bearer of God's word, but he is the living word. The word become flesh, as John puts it. And as John says, he was the true light, the light that shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. In Jesus Christ, God is speaking to his world. And as we know him and relate to him, God then speaks to us. And that then gives us something to say to the world around us. Real spiritual food to give out to our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends in the midst of spiritual famine. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.